A lot of the lawyers that I've talked to are, are willing to think about backing up their data into the cloud, even if they're not willing to yet jump in with both feet on a whole bunch of other software as a service applications. So it really does help people sort of get their feet wet. This is Lawyer to Lawyer, the award-winning legal podcast with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. West Coast meets East Coast, and yes, they are attorneys, bringing you the latest legal news and observations every week with the leading experts in the legal profession. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, produced right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. I have a book out called How to Get Sued. Bob? And I write a blog called Law Sites and a legal blog watch for law.com and also another blog called Media Law. Today's show is sponsored by uh, Clio, Landy Insurance, and Top Class Actions. And in today's show, we're going to talk about this uh, somewhat recent phenomenon of, of software as a service. Uh, this is software that's hosted off in the cloud and uh, that is accessed using only a web browser. No need to install any uh, local software on your on your desktop. This is uh, referred generically to cloud computing, but it's taking off uh, with particular applications for the legal profession. And while law firms struggle with the idea of using this service based on questions about security, an introduction to a new product or service, uh, 2009 could be the year that uh, this type of work takes off in the legal community. I actually don't even know how to pronounce it. (laughs) There are a number of providers out there who are offering uh, generic products and services in the cloud and more specifically legal products and services in the cloud. And the cloud, of course, is kind of a, a metaphor for the uh, the internet, what's out there. But uh, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to take uh, a more in-depth look at some of the advantages, disadvantages, and perhaps even some of the ethical issues uh, when it comes to software as a service. Helping us do that today are two guests. Uh, our first guest is Jack Newton. Jack is the co-founder and president of Clio, a leading provider of web-based practice management uh, solutions. Jack holds a Master's of Science degree in computer science from the University of Alberta and has more than 10 years of experience building startups and web applications. Jack holds three software-related patents in the United States and the EU. He's spoken at any number of CLE seminars on, on how practice management systems can be used to help a lawyer practice ethically and competently. He's also written and spoken on the ethics, privacy, and security issues specifically relating to the use of SaaS in the legal market. Uh, and I, I want to just take a moment to acknowledge something. I think this is the first time this has ever happened on on our show, uh, which is that uh, Clio, uh, of which Jack is the president, uh, has, has been a, a sponsor of our podcast. Uh, and we want to make clear that we're having him on this program today, not because he's a sponsor, but because uh, he's somebody who uh, we consider to be knowledgeable and authority on this topic. 
and uh, somebody we've wanted to have on the program for for quite some time now. So we're glad to have him. And, and Jack Newton, welcome to the program today. Oh, thanks a lot, Bob. I'm uh, I'm happy to be here. Well, Bob, our next guest is Eric Mazzoni. He is the director for of the Center for Practice Management of the North Carolina Bar Association. He provides advice there on technology, marketing, management, and finance. He's also the associate editor of Law Practice Today, a web-based magazine published by the ABA Law Practice Management section. And he's a member of the program committee of the National Association of Bar Executives. He's also a graduate of uh, both of our uh, home area, Boston College and Boston College Law School, and speaks frequently on law practice management. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Eric. Thanks for having me, guys. Well, Jack, let's start with you, and perhaps you could tell our listeners, what are we talking about here when we're talking about software as a service in general? Well, I think uh, you did a great job of explaining uh, briefly what software as a service is, Bob. And, and really, I think, you know, the most important thing to, to know about software as a service is it's a completely new model of software distribution. And, and maybe to highlight how it's different, it's uh, a good way to do that would be to highlight how software, traditional desktop software is distributed. So we're all familiar with this process. If you want the, say, latest copy of Microsoft Office, you would go to your local Best Buy, pick up a shrink-wrapped piece of software, install it on your computer. If you're in a multi-user environment, uh, potentially install it on your server. You would then have to set up systems to back up and secure the software. You'd need to deploy it out to all the other workstations that you'd like to have access to the software. And inevitably, with all, all desktop software, there's an upgrade treadmill that you're getting on uh, where every 6 to 24 months, uh, you'll basically need to rinse and repeat and start that entire process uh, over again when the, the software company releases a new version of the software. Uh, Microsoft Office, as an example, is very easy to set up and configure, but there's a lot of software where you need to set up a, a server version of this, the software and a, a desktop version of the software, and you often need to bring an IT consultant in at a 100 or $150 an hour to help you set that up. And then you've got the software installed in your office, running on servers on, in your office. Now, that's the traditional desktop software distribution model. The software-as-a-service uh, distribution model uh, really turns that on its head and allows you to outsource all of those headaches to a third-party service provider. Um, and the basic idea with software-as-a-service or cloud computing or web applications, uh, which I, I think for the purposes of, of this podcast we can basically treat as, uh, as synonyms, uh, is that you're... Uh, you're accessing your applications through your web browser. So there's really no software to install or configure. You're just accessing a website to get all of your data and to get to your applications. So if you have Internet Explorer, Firefox, Safari, or any other web browser installed on your computer, you've basically got all the prerequisites to use software as a service. And a lot of the listeners of your show are probably already using software as a service, even if they don't, they don't know it. So uh, if you're using Gmail... Hotmail, uh, Google Docs, Salesforce.com, even if you do online banking, those would be all examples of what I'd consider to be uh, under the software as a service umbrella. Well, Eric, let's jump in here and get uh, your perspective from the ground. I mean, you um, in North Carolina, how are law firms and lawyers reacting to this new type of uh, software and service? Well, it's starting to catch on pretty well here in North Carolina. I think a lot of our younger lawyers in particular coming out of law school and starting now to set up law firms aren't as scared of it as I think some other practitioners have been. The lawyers who have had uh, the same software on their computers and, and servers in their offices, keeping all of their client data in a box where they can see it, um, 
those guys have a hard time, I think, transitioning over to the idea that all of a sudden your client data is going to be somewhere in this nebulous cloud, um, which is uh, just a pretty big hurdle for them to get over. But I work a lot with uh, young lawyers coming out of uh, law schools in our state, and uh, I see increasingly a willingness and, a, and an interest in, in getting into software as a service for practice management, like Clio, and there's some, some other good options out there as well. But also, as Jack was mentioning, for office suite stuff, I mean, th- these guys are using Google for everything, um, for online email, you know, uh, data backup. The, the uses really are expanding. I've said this uh, probably any number of times, but the number one question I hear from people about software as a service or or cloud computing in general is the security of data. Uh, There was news just just a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, that that Carbonite, which is a a major provider of online backup services, um, actually lost uh, a significant quantity of uh, customer data. This is a company that's uh, in the business of securing and storing data online. Uh, and in fairness, I think I have to say, I think they were able to to reinstate much of that that, that was lost. But Erica, you know, you're a practice management advisor. What, what do you tell people about the security of cloud computing? Well, Bob, and I'm glad you brought up online backup because I really do think that Jack and Everybody else who runs a software as a service company ought to go and thank everybody in the online backup business because that is truly like the gateway drug to software as a service for all other applications. <laughs> a lot of the lawyers that I've talked to are, are willing to think about backing up their data into the cloud, even if they're not willing to yet jump in with both feet on a whole bunch of other software as a service applications. So it really does help people sort of get their feet wet. But in terms of security, I mean, I walk into law offices all across our state. I see computers in all kinds of different states of repair and maintenance. I've seen some things that look like the first server ever made. And I think comparing that to some of the level five data centers that you have out there through some of the online backup services like CoreVault and SugarSync and Mosey and, and that stuff. I mean, I personally would feel a lot better having my data at one of those redundant data centers, you know, with um, a place in Ohio and a place in California in case of natural disaster than I would in an eight-year-old server that was sitting in the next room. Jack, what's your perspective on that? I'd like to hear from you on that. Yeah, I I, I, uh, I would echo uh, Eric's thoughts on, on that. I, I think that a lot of, uh, not just lawyers, but a lot of uh, anyone using a computer often has a false sense of security around how well they're doing something, whether it's locking down your firewall, uh, locking down your actual computer, backing up your data. Uh, we've all heard the, the horror stories and the uh, statistics around how many uh, backups that uh, are gone to to actually perform a recovery from end up being uh, non-recoverable. So I think that, uh, by and large, uh, these third-party service providers because their entire business model depends on security and reliability, they're going to end up doing uh, a better job of backing up and securing your data than you could probably do yourselves. And I think companies like, like Carbonite, companies like, like Google that have had their own uh, recent issues with, with Google Docs uh, basically show you that um, there's still humans involved in this equation and, and humans will make mistakes. And, and I think that whether it's you doing your own backups, your own security, or outsourcing it to somebody else, there's, there's always a, a risk factor involved that I think you need to do everything you can to mitigate. And something I think that's really important for any online service provider, 
uh, is to provide a mechanism for their users to uh, back up their own data locally, uh, even though you may trust the third-party service provider. As I said, these are, are still companies and systems being run by humans, and nobody can uh, promise 100% reliability, even if you achieve uh, five nines reliability, 99.999% reliability, there's still the opportunity for uh, for data loss. So I think it's really important that you, you back up a local copy of your data, and you know if you're using a system like Mosey for online backup, and I use it for my own home system, actually. Uh, I, I really like Mosey. Like, like Eric said, it's a fantastic service, but I will still keep my own hard drive-based uh, backup of my own data for the just-in-case scenario. And I think that's important whether you're using uh, a third-party service provider or software as a service or hosting your own data internally. Never rely on just one backup or one system. Get at least two systems in place. So uh, that's actually the way they, they fly the spacecraft. There's always at least, uh, uh, or the space shuttle rather, there's always at least one redundant system for everything on the, the space shuttle. And I, I think operating your business, you should look at uh, exactly the same way. Well, we're going to turn to the cloud here for a minute. We have a question from a listener through Twitter. He says, I have a question about SaaS. How is e-discovery implemented when data is in the cloud? Would Google get a subpoena to have a forensic copy of, of their drive made, for example? And if so, what about everyone else's data on the same drive? Eric, you want to take that question or, or uh, Jack? Uh, hey, this is Eric. And uh it's a little outside of, of my area of expertise. There was a lot of talk about this at Tech Show uh, just recently out in Chicago. There was a, um, sort of discussing the, the competing issues of, of, that are put on, on you in terms of storing electronic, uh, electronically stored information for e-discovery and then um, accessing it through the cloud. I don't have a great answer to, to that myself, but maybe Jack does. Well, I think, um, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, the Patriot Act and other um, acts in American law uh, provide the U.S. government with a lot of power and a lot of power to reach into third-party data centers or even your own, uh, your own data center if you're hosting your own uh, servers. So, again, I think this is uh, an example of a law that has a lot of reach, regardless of whether you're using a software as a service provider or hosting the data yourself. Uh, speaking to the uh, architecture question you're asking about in terms of what about everyone else's data on the server? Uh, most uh, software as a service applications are, are built using what are called multi-tenant architectures where you can have uh, multiple users running on the same server. This is where the economies of scale of uh, cloud computing come from. Uh, but uh, despite the fact that these servers are multi-tenanted, um, everyone is segregated into their own unique data space. And, and that's where the, the tenant analogy comes along. You can think of your data as living in its own private apartment uh, in this uh, in this multi-tenanted architecture, so if there was one piece of data that needed to be uh, pulled out or, or retrieved, uh, whether that was for backup purposes or uh, in this uh, Twitter's uh, uh, example uh, by court order, that can be done independently of the uh, the rest of the the data on the system. We we should mention that we've added a feature on the Legal Talk Network uh, where uh, listeners can can come uh, in advance of our programs and submit questions, and we've also been. Uh, eliciting questions off of Twitter. And we, we actually have one other question that's come in via Twitter. This is from uh, Ed Walters, who some people may know as the CEO of Fastcase. Uh, Ed's question is this, uh, do you think the whole concept of software as a service is kind of anachronistic or buzzwordy? Seems like the bigger differentiator of applications should be in the features and pricing and not whether they're running locally on your computer, on an office network, or on a remote server. Uh, would you agree with that? 
Eric, would you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, I largely would. I mean, I think as internet pipes get thicker and more present, and it seems like there's a, a Wi-Fi network everywhere I go, that to me personally as a user of these programs, it doesn't matter a great deal to me where I'm accessing it from. So I, I would agree with that basic take and that um, that differentiation between Clio and Clio's competitors out there is, for me would come down to how do I really? How can I interact with that product as a as an attorney? Can it does it do the things I need it to do, as opposed to um, you know just a, a sort of a straw distinction about whether I've installed it myself or whether it runs back in Vancouver. Jack, how about you? You have thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, well, I think uh, I, I certainly agree with Ed uh, that uh, software as a service is a buzzwordy term uh, currently. Uh, it, it's cloud computing, software as a service. Um, although in many ways they seem like new concepts. Uh, these are ideas that are actually a decade old. Uh, we might all remember from the, the dot-com boom, uh, the concept of application service providers. Um, and, and so the, Oh, we do remember that painfully, but yes. <laughs> right. So, so this is the same overall, uh, overall concept. I would disagree uh, respectfully with Ed that it's, it's um, just an academic distinction, though, because I think what the software-as-a-service model does is really turn the onus of, of managing IT and the infrastructure away from the lawyer over to a third party that can do it uh, in all likelihood a lot more efficiently and a lot more capably uh, than they do. So if you look at the current model where to run some desktop software, uh, needing to buy a server, perform maintenance on that server, buy some software, roll it out, uh, you're either spending a ton of uh, non-billable time as yourself as an attorney setting up that infrastructure or hiring someone else to take care of it for you. So I think that, you know, while I agree with Ed that you need to be competing with desktop software products uh, on on features, and that's absolutely from the user's perspective how they should be evaluating uh, the, the products is, does this do what I need it to do? Uh, the, the fact that uh, a product is offered via software as a service mechanism ends up offering a lot of unique advantages that desktop software products have a difficult time replicating. So, so just as a few examples, if you're using a software as a service product, you can get to that product from your home computer, from your uh, from your computer at your office. You can get to it from the courts. Uh, you could get to it from your vacation if you had to. Uh, and increasingly, we're seeing uh, mobile iPhone interfaces, BlackBerry interfaces for these software as a service applications. And because your data is living uh, in the cloud, you can get to a, an up-to-date. Uh, version of your data from virtually any device in any location. And I think that's a really, uh, you know, easy to overlook fact uh, that's, that's actually a, a pretty unique advantage of, of software as a service that while sometimes possible with desktop-based software, with the use of virtual private networks, uh, you'd be looking at a lot of additional cost and, and setup uh, and potentially additional licensing cost because typically for each device or each computer you're accessing the software from, there's an additional fee. So I think that that, uh, that the software as a service anywhere accessibility um, is something that's truly a unique advantage that uh, delivers value beyond just being a, a buzzword. So where is the cloud located? Is this a cloud over Nebraska or Iowa, or is it uh, solely in one place, or is it is the computers that the servers that house this uh, cloud computing software where are they are they located in one place and are they subject to any kind of disaster recovery issues like say if there's a tornado in Iowa or a earthquake in California or a fire in New Mexico right so the cloud um, 
you know, there's definitely a center of gravity to the cloud around uh, Silicon Valley in, in California. There's a lot of cloud computing providers that run their offices out of uh, um, California, but there's, as you pointed out, the need for geographic redundancy. Uh, so um, just using a use case, uh, an example of uh, Amazon's uh, Elastic Computing Cloud Service. So this, it, it's uh, Amazon's EC2 service is a service that Amazon would sell to companies like Clio that needs scalable, reliable infrastructure. And they actually allow you to uh, create a server in the cloud in any one of multiple geographic locations across the United States, uh, also uh, in the EU. Um, they have another um, uh, cloud computing service called Amazon S3, their scalable storage service that allows you to uh, store data in the cloud. Uh, and when you store a piece of data with Amazon's EC2 service or with their S3 service, um, they're taking care of the uh, the data availability and data redundancy issues uh, that traditionally would have uh, required a very large capital ex- uh, expenditure from the software provider's perspective uh, at a, a fixed hourly rate. So you can actually rent a server from from Amazon for around seventy dollars a month, and you if you have demand or need to scale to a very high level of uh, of demand, you can just buy additional computing resources from from Amazon um, on an incremental basis. So I think companies like Amazon are really reshaping how uh, companies like Clio can leverage the computing infrastructure that they've deployed to help support a huge uh, secure website like Amazon.com without having to build out uh, um, our own extensive server infrastructure. We do need to take a break, but before we do that, I want to just check, Eric, was there something you wanted to say on that point before we go to a break? Actually, just real briefly, on the earlier point that Jack was making, I did want to just say that um, the constellation of benefits that that Jack was touting as unique to SaaS, I would take some issue with that, that really the issue for me is, from a lawyer's perspective, is who is going to be your third-party vendor here? Is it... Uh, to my mind, a software-as-a-service product makes it a lot easier and cleaner for a lawyer, but you're able to, to duplicate a lot of that accessibility, as I think Jack mentioned, through virtual private networks and, and other things. There are options with a qualified IT consultant. I'm not totally sold that software-as-a-service is cheaper, um, but it does seem to me a little easier. Okay, well, we'll follow up on that and talk more about this after this brief break. Imagine how much easier managing your practice would be if your practice management software was web-based. Your practice would be available anywhere you have an internet connection, completely secure, backed up continuously, and most importantly, easy to use, allowing you to spend your valuable time building your practice instead of managing technology. Start simplifying your practice today with Clio. Sign up for a free, fully functional 30-day trial at www.goclio.com. Use promotional code L2L for a 25% discount. When it comes to protecting your legal practice, how confident are you that your professional liability insurance provides the best possible coverage for the best possible price? At the Herbert H. Landy Insurance Agency, we know that law firms insured with us can answer yes on both counts. Visit our website at www.landy.com for a convenient online application or call us at 800 800- 336-5422 for prompt and personal attention. TopCostActions.com ethically connects attorneys to potential clients. 
At TopClassActions.com, attorneys can review submissions, locate effective plaintiffs for new lawsuits, or advertise your settlement to add more claimants. With membership in our attorney network, you review complaints submitted by Top Class Actions viewers, and it's free to try. No credit card required for the free membership. Go to TopClassActions.com slash attorney. That's TopClassActions.com slash attorney. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. We'd like to welcome back Jack Newton, co-founder and president of Clio, and Eric Mazzoni, the director of the Center for Practice Management for the North Carolina Bar Association. Well, one of the questions that I've got about SAS is that how is it going to deal with internal IT people? Are, are we going to be losing IT people out of firms, and will the cloud computing essentially make IT people put them in the cloud as well? Well, if you're asking me, this is Eric, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that is going to happen a fair amount, and I think that's one of the reasons a lot of lawyers I see end up choosing some SaaS options is to reduce their IT uh, headcount and and costs. Although they're turning to IT outsourcing for all the same reasons. Uh, this is this is Jack speaking. I, I think that uh, it doesn't eliminate the need for uh, in-house IT. I, I think what it does provide is the opportunity for in-house IT. Uh, to work on more interesting and uh, more valuable problems. So if you look at the basic infrastructure that you're removing when you go with software as a service, you're taking away your servers, you're taking away your need for uh, doing weekly or monthly security updates and so forth, um, that's basic plumbing that is now being outsourced to a, a third party. And now with, with you know, not having to spend hours per, per week um, taking care of that, that plumbing, the in-house IT, whether it's a consultant or a staff member, will be able to focus on IT problems that are a little higher up on the value chain. So rather than patching the Windows server, they'd be able to put some effort into, for example, tying in with the application programming interface that uh, cloud computing providers uh, or, or software as a service companies typically provide, and maybe look at doing things like document automation, uh, improving document workflows, helping make sure that all of the existing data uh, that, that was existed on the, the previous desktop-based software system has been properly imported and brought into the, uh, the software-as-a-service platform, uh, perhaps integrating the software-as-a-service platform with uh, third-party accounting packages. So there's still a lot of work to be done in a lot of ways that uh, IT uh, vendors, IT consultants, or in-house IT staff fit into this, this overall software-as-a-service ecosystem. It's just it's that they actually get to do a lot more interesting work. Uh, the, the plumbing and the, the dirty work has been being taken care of by somebody else now. Jack, the other question that I hear a lot is uh, what happens when you're not plugged into the cloud? What happens when you're offline? I know Google Gears is making it possible to use some of these cloud applications uh, when you're not in the cloud. But uh, what, about, what about Clio? What about some of the products in the legal market? Is that happening there? Yeah, so I think the, the offline access scenario is, is important in a lot of different ways. There's, uh, if you're working on a plane and want to track some time against a case, for example, uh, ideally you'd like to be, you know, doing something better than recording the time in an Excel spreadsheet or jotting it down on the, the back of a business card. Uh, if your internet connection goes down, uh, you don't want to feel completely stranded and removed from your practice that's, that's being hosted in the cloud. Uh, so there's, as you pointed out, two uh, technology platforms that uh, have, have come out that allow software as a service companies to deliver offline versions of their applications. Uh, there's Google Gears, uh, and, and Google's been doing a great job of bringing applications like Gmail and Google Calendar 
uh, offline with uh, with the Google Gears framework. Uh, and Adobe has released uh, uh, another framework called Adobe Air uh, that uh, does two things, actually. It allows you to build a desktop um, version of your application that has a, the, the native look and feel of your desktop operating system, whether that's Windows or, or OS X. Uh, and it also has offline capabilities. So something we just rolled out at last week's tech show uh, at Clio uh, is some offline access capabilities for, for Clio. And we've used the Adobe Air application. We basically get two big wins out of that choice. Number one, we get a, a, a desktop application so that a user uh, can access uh, Clio's uh, timers and, and so forth directly from a, a desktop application without necessarily having to uh, spark up their web browser and navigate to the Clio website. And uh, we've built in some uh, offline capabilities so that uh, if you do end up in one of these offline scenarios, uh, you can still do things like track your time and so forth. Um, and then as soon as you get your Internet connection back, uh, you're able to resynchronize and, and get all of your uh, changes to your data uh, resynced to the cloud. That being said, I, I think that while on one hand I'm arguing for offline access, I also think the need for offline access has, has been mitigated to a large degree over the last uh, four or five years where Internet connections have become uh, increasingly reliable. Um, you're able to implement methods to get uh, backup offline access via some of these uh, USB uh, sticks that are available in a lot of urban areas where you can uh, get high-speed Internet access from a, from a USB stick or even get internet access through your through your iPhone and so forth. So I think that while on one hand there is certainly uh, a few use cases for offline access, I think that we're, what we're seeing is that um, the internet is becoming as pervasive and as critical to business uh, functioning uh, as power. So uh, I, I think that that's one thing that's really helping drive the adoption of software service applications is that uh, the internet has basically become uh, another utility that we just expect to be available. Well, gentlemen, we've about reached the end of the program, so it's time for us to ask you for your final thoughts and your contact information. So, uh, Eric, can we start with you? Yeah, I think uh, software as a service is a great platform. I think it's the future. I think uh, lawyers shouldn't be afraid of it, but I think they ought to be careful about it, read the user agreements, make sure they know who owns the data, and um, they know the physical and digital security policies of their vendors. And your contact information for our listeners? Oh, yeah, and uh, I can be reached through my blog at lawpracticematters.com. And Jack? All right, well, I, I think uh, Bob's uh, initial comment about uh, 2009 being a really important year for software as a service is, is absolutely correct. I think we've seen uh, an alignment of a lot of different factors that have made uh, software as a service a, a really viable option for a lot of law firms out there, whereas it wasn't in past years. So uh, I would also echo uh, Eric's comment. Uh, do your research. Uh, check with your local bar association. Uh, look into what the um, ethics opinions and so forth are around software as a service. Uh, there's been uh, some guidance from the ABA uh, indicating that uh, you, you basically need to make sure that your software as a service provider uh, is, is doing a competent job of securing and backing up your data and not risking uh, any breach of client confidentiality. So in your due diligence in looking at uh, software as a service providers, whether it's for online backup or for your practice management needs, make sure... Uh, make sure you do that. I think that uh, anyone who's interested in finding out more about uh, Clio can visit our website, which is uh, www.goclio.com. That's G-O-C-L-I-O.com. Uh, and you can also reach me uh, directly via uh, 
uh, my email address, which is jack at gocleo.com, uh, or ping me on Twitter. Uh, we're at gocleo. Great. Jack and Eric, thank you very much. Well, that, that about does it for this week's Lawyer to Lawyer, Bob. And uh, for our listeners, remember, you can check out all of our shows on LegalTalkNetwork.com. Let me add my thanks to Jack and Eric for participating today. It was a very interesting discussion and uh, always too short, I think, but uh, glad to have them. And uh, Craig, uh, you and I may or may not talk next week. I'm not sure I'll be here next week or not, but if not, uh, next time. Well, the show will be back without you, Bob, and uh, if I have to do it on my own, I'll do it. But like it is, occasionally we both take time off and uh, we'll miss you, but we'll be here. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. Every week, a new legal topic that you won't want to miss. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.